Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about uh, the murder of George Floyd up in Minneapolis, and then five reasons why your church members disagree on when to reopen. You're listening to The Common Good. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Ian, it's Wednesday. What do we call that? I forget. What is Wednesday? I'm not participating in this. Because <laughs> it's home day. Glad that you are with us. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, you can find us online, 1160hope.com, and our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, just glad for those of you who do podcast and listen throughout the week. Uh, I just realized I am up. Uh, we are still broadcasting from our houses. I am overlooking my neighbor's lawn that he is mowing right now. He decided to start mowing right when we started the show. So hopefully that that you can't hear that on the other end. <laughs> right. I can I can barely hear you talking. It's so loud. There you go. I'm actually on the mower. <laughs> well, that makes sense. I am actually on the mower. Well, wanted to start with the last couple of weeks. We've been starting with a lot of COVID, a lot of coronavirus pandemic talk, but Wanted to jump in today with the story out of Minneapolis that we introduced on the show yesterday. I remember, uh, gosh, a lot changes in 24 hours. You were like, hey, are we going to talk about this George Floyd story? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I hadn't even seen it at the point of when our show went on yesterday. And now uh, a lot more has happened. Just some background. Uh, George Floyd uh, was arrested, pulled out of a car. Uh, he was a forgery suspect in Minneapolis and uh You've probably seen the video by now, uh, not just handcuffed, but an officer had his knee on his neck for multiple minutes. Uh, and George Floyd, who said, I can't breathe. And people were trying to get the officer to stop. Uh, George Floyd tragically uh, died from that. And uh, it, uh, all four officers were fired. The mayor of Minneapolis today came out and said, uh, that he thinks they should be charged. And there was a lot of protests that got uh, understandably very emotional last night uh, in the city of Minneapolis. And so that's kind of the background. We've got an article at Christian Today that uh, that we'll either touch on or not, but I'd encourage you to read it that Ed Stetzer wrote. Um, but Ian, I, I don't know, as you've had 24 hours to reflect, I do know that you've been posting a lot of things, just kind of your thoughts and your reflections on this. Uh, wondering what you would like to share with our audience as over these last 24 hours, you've reflected on all that we've seen uh, from this incident involving the police and George Floyd. I mean, I, I mentioned it yesterday. I don't I don't even know that I have that much I want to share. To be honest, I want to do a lot more listening. I mean, I realize yeah. this is a talk show and <laughs> yeah. you and I are responsible for filling some kind of content. I, I for me and we mentioned it briefly yesterday. There's there's so much learning that I know that I still need to do. I mean, even in our staff meeting today, my friend Eric was sort of sharing with us and you know, he's, he's, I think the only black male staff member at the yellow box and oh, was simply sharing a really tender conversation with his boys and just what mm. the last day has been like for him. And it was gut wrenching. I mean, it, it's been a gut wrenching day anyway, but hearing it straight from his mouth about his own experiences with, his boys that we know. Um, and they asked if I would lead us in a time of prayer. And I just felt prompted, I guess, in that moment. You know, if you've seen the video, you know that 
police officer had a knee on his neck. He was kneeling on his neck. And I said, I think, I think we need to reclaim this restorative act of kneeling because kneeling historically has been a posture of humility, of surrender, of respect, not, not of violence. And so I asked if our staff would be willing to just simply kneel wherever they were at as we prayed. And they all did. It was just sort of this very somber, strangely beautiful, but still full of grief kind of moment where we just, we pray that God would heal us and heal our land and heal our world. And, and to reveal in us even, you know, I think sometimes Christ followers, especially, you know, ones that feel like maybe they're more woke than others. It's easy to sort of point at like racism and bigotry, like out there, but to also be praying and asking God reveal anything in my heart that even has a whiff of racism or bigotry that is looking down on an image bearer, you know, and I think that's been the, that's been the whole struggle. And I, there's a lot of articles and I've written some, I wrote a thing a little bit earlier about kneeling and breath. And I wrote a thing that was sort of a, just more of a prayer of lament. And sometimes for me, that's just a helpful way of processing it. But in I think both of those posts, you know, I sort of identified my need to, to listen more and to decenter my narrative a little bit to really better or to try to better understand what it's like in someone else's shoes, particularly um, people of color, minorities. I think that that's a really easy thing for us to miss, that like our experiences are not the same. And I think it's a real miss if the church doesn't, does not assume a posture of learners in this season, I think, I think would be a huge loss. That's very well put. I, I didn't, I don't want to, I didn't think about asking you this question. But I'm going to ask it anyway. Hopefully uh, you don't feel put on the spot. Uh, I saw somebody post about they were they were taking umbrage with, and I know that most people don't agree with this, but was taking umbrage with calling racism a sin. It was more, they were trying to argue around it. Could you pastorally, and I know this almost seems like a, a softball question, but why would you call racism a sin? Biblically, what makes racism a sin that we've got to root out of our church and that, and that the church needs to be helping root out as best we can of our culture? Yeah, I'd love to see that post you're talking about because I, I, I would have a really hard time even thinking about how to argue it's not. I mean, if yeah. you know, we talk a lot about the Imago Dei, that we're made in the image and likeness of God. That's so right. if that's true for all of humanity, then racism isn't just like impolite or a bad idea or a difference of opinion. It's blasphemous. It is yeah. blaspheming the sacred honor and dignity given by God to all human people. I think John Perkins once said in an interview we did with him a couple of years ago, he said, we don't give people dignity. We affirm it. Like it's not a, it's not on mm-hmm. us to give that to someone else. Like it's already been given to them in Jesus by God, the creator there. So I think racism, any, and that's, that goes for any bigotry to be honest. And I think that that probably yeah. needs to be said louder and more consistently, particularly by people in majority culture context like you and I. But if that's true, that we're made in the image and likeness of God to berate or denigrate or belittle or exploit or harm an image bearer is that's a problem. That's a sin. And I think that there's, there's a, a real great need for us to start talking about it with that level of intensity, because I think as long as it remains in the realm of like, well, agree to disagree or, you yeah. know, there's every, there's, but sometimes people are raised in different cultures or they had different grandparents. Well, they're not their grandparents. It's time it's time for us to put our big boy pants on to learn and listen and grow. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, hopefully hopefully we, we can begin to heal. 
That's awesome. Uh, so the Stetzer article, I'd encourage people to read from Christianity Today. He talks about how that primarily what happened in Minneapolis should cause anger. But also, you know, the day before was that incident in Central Park with right, right. Uh, the, the lady walking her dog and Christian Cooper. Um, and there was an incident in Minneapolis today at a gym. Like, you just see these a lot more now. Uh, and, and Stetzer talks about how it should cause anger. But then he goes into talking about how we are a brother's keeper, uh, that it that we need to be standing up. And he talks about exactly what you just shared, about the Imago Dei, the image of God, and why this is so fundamentally important to us as Christians. Like, right. it's not about, uh, you know, a side of the aisle or this or that for us Christians. This is at the core of what we talk about. And so it's such a sad story. Um, and again, I think Ian does a good job at helping us say, hey, we got to find ways to listen and, and find ways to listen. And so we'd love to hear from you. You can find the articles that uh, we're referencing here at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to jump back into the topic of church reopening amidst the COVID-19 pandemic with an article that says five reasons why your church members probably disagree about reopening. That's coming up next year on The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today on a sunny, warm hump day, Wednesday afternoon. Glad that you are with us. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. Find us online. Uh, at 1160hope.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram, uh, Common Good Talk. And you can find us, uh, our podcast. Man, I I lost my train of thought there. We're going (laughs) podcast. Wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe. Rate and review. Ooh, that one, that was a 43-year-old moment there, right there, man. You want to tap me in? You got it for the rest of the show? (laughs) The train just went off the track in my head right there. <laughs> then again, that could be that could be good radio, I guess. Woo! I thought we were about nine minutes of me going, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, it's a it's a good day. So at the Christian Post, uh Tom Rayner, who does a lot of writing on uh church dynamics, of uh church demographics, uh a lot of surveying. Uh, he wrote an article at the Christian Post called Five Reasons Why Your Church Members Disagree uh, on When to Reopen. With that in mind, did you see uh, Cisco Cotto's tweet yesterday, by any chance, uh, our old friend no. Cisco? I've seen nothing else on it, so I don't know what it meant. But after our show was over, Cisco tweeted uh, Governor Pritzker saying that uh, all Illinois churches should send a plan to him and that he doesn't plan on telling churches what they should do. It was like a complete 180 opposite of everything we've been told. Did he, did he uh, seem like he was being held hostage or something? Is it that- was the weirdest thing because then I have I was like, well, this is going to blow up Twitter. And I didn't see another thing about it. So I have no idea. Who knows what it was actually said there. So maybe it was like a, um, it could have been a fake account, maybe. No, it wasn't. That's the thing. And Cisco's a good newsman. So uh, yeah. we'll see if there's any follow up. But with that said. Uh, especially in Illinois right now, as things have changed in Massachusetts, things have changed in California about when churches can reopen, what they're going to look like. Uh, Illinois is kind of the next one that people think that the governor is going to feel a little bit of pressure and make some changes. And so it raises this uh, this whole will churches uh, reopen sooner? What will that look like? And, and before getting into that, li- this list that Tom Rayner said, uh, 
Do you, even in the 24 hours since we talked about this yesterday, have you seen even more discussions, say, on your social media accounts or people asking you about just around this topic of churches reopening? Yeah, I feel like right after our show was done, actually, I got a bunch of texts from people. Maybe it's because we touched on it. I don't yeah. know if that has anything to do with it, but just friends. I have friends in a number of different states who are also trying to navigate it, and they're in various different positions of leadership. So some of them are like, well, this is what leadership decided. I don't really have a say. Others are yeah. you know, their lead pastor trying to figure out how to lead their team and their people well. So yeah, I, I feel like for some reason, yesterday evening, I got a, a number of interesting emails from friends asking what, what they're doing. Yeah. And uh, if you go to our Facebook page, let's just say there was some lively discussion yesterday around the topic. <laughs> you could say that. that would be accurate. That was interesting. And so this is an emotionally charged thing, right? In Massachusetts, they uh, pastor sent a letter to the governor and he kind of loosened up some of the stuff. California, now the, 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 they made the limit 100 people. And so we're all kind of waiting what's going to happen here in Illinois. And so with that said, Tom Rayner wrote five reasons why your church members disagree on when to reopen. Because here's what you can lose sight of is that uh, as uh, that, that there's going to be a diversity of opinion within your church about when to reopen. Uh, and even if you do reopen, there's going to be a lot, right? We shared the Craig Grishel stuff from Oklahoma, where he said they figured out on their first day of reopening, it looked like 12% of their people came back yeah. and that uh, there's going to be people all over the place. So Rainer writes, it might be helpful to understand the reason behind the disagreements. He says, we find five major themes here. Here we go. Number one, uh, strong extroverts and strong introverts will have major disagreements on timing. He says the reason's obvious. A extrovert is dying to resume interaction. Uh, he or she thrives on in-person gatherings. The strong introvert has done well seeing few people and interacting. And he says, I fit the latter category. I found it very interesting. He started with this one. I've got a feeling you might disagree with this assertion. Am I guessing right <laughs> about you? Why? Why would you guess I would disagree with it? I think that you uh, we had a talk a couple of weeks ago. I feel like that extroverts and introverts, it doesn't mean you want to be with people or not. Right. And that this kind of is bigger than that right now. So what are your thoughts about his assertion here? Yeah, I mean, he's he puts himself in the latter category. So maybe he feels that way. But introvert does not mean antisocial at all. And I know right. plenty. I mean, again, he's trying to reduce it down to five. So I'm not going to slam him for that. But I do think sometimes that's a little unhelpful because like, oh, extroverts can't wait to be around people. And introverts, <laughs> what does he say, have done well seeing few people interacting with few people during the quarantine. Right. Like, I don't know that that's always the case for every introvert, but that's, I guess, the point of a list. Right. And the li he gets to more of the things that I thought he would actually say. That's why I said that was a really interesting one to start with. Yeah. Uh, number two, uh, different church members have different sources of authority on the coronavirus. Some mm. of it could be related to political leanings. For others, it could be connected to the type of news that comes through social media. For some, they listen to certain friends and family members. In case you haven't noticed, there are a lot of different opinions out there. And I think that's important for us to realize that not just culturally, there's a lot of different opinions, but in your church, your particular church, there are a lot of different opinions right now. So I'm not losing my mind. These are all numbered number one, right? Is that what you're seeing? They are. Okay. Yes, they so are. <laughs> I had one of those moments where I'm like, am I, do I need to sit down? I mean, I am sitting down. Do I need to lay down? Anyway, uh, this is number three, I guess. Yes. Age and health can be factors of divergent opinions. Two of the common themes about COVID-19 have been the vulnerability of the older population and those with underlying conditions. It would not be unexpected for those two groups to be more likely to prefer a later opening 
In an earlier opening, one of my sons has chronic asthma. I worry about him returning to in-person services too soon, which, again, a lot of people tend to say, well, then just don't go. Like it's right. I think it's more complicated than that, though, especially like in the case of his son, like they can make the decision like, hey, because of your condition, you should go a little bit later. But it, then there's that missing out thing, especially right. for young people that, you know, is is mitigated a little bit. When you're like, Well, if everyone's online, then I guess I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. That's right. That's right. Now you think about a church like our size, that's kind of new to the whole online thing. Yeah. Uh, once we go back live, we're going to still be online, but it won't be as good. And so right. the people who stay home, uh, they're going to just need to, to kind of wade through that with us because it's, it's kind of a whole new learning curve that's going to take place for mm-hmm. some of us that didn't do that before. Uh, number four, parents with children may decide to wait. Most churches will not segregate the children from the adult worship services at the ounce at, at the Onset. I'm. I think I'm having a stroke today. <laughs> We're both struggling. At the onset of the regathering, some parents will be hesitant to bring the kids to worship services for health reasons and for fear of disruption. It's just some some for health reasons, but also it might just be easier because I think most churches, when we reopen, there won't be children's ministry as you know it, right. uh, and so parents with kids just might decide whether for health reasons or for distraction or other reasons just to wait. Quick, say Christianity Today. Christianity Today, today. Uh, nailed it. All right, number five, attitudes towards change affect opinions about regathering. For example, if a change-resistant church member learns that the church must have additional services for social distancing, he or she may prefer to wait until the church can return to, quote, normal. Change-receptive church members, however, are often eager to try new services and new ideas. They will be ready to return and experiment with the new approaches, which, again, has been the thing that I've had to try to envision since all of this began, like right. what would the yellow box auditorium look like at 15% capacity and everyone is seven feet away with masks. Like, can you imagine preaching to that? Does that strike no. you as bizarre? Or when you think of that, you're like, no, I'll, I'll be just fine doing that. Yeah. I think all of us, because we miss being in our places, everyone, both from pastors, but also congregants, like, I'll take it, I'll take it. But actually doing it, I think we're going to be like, oh, that was strange. This is weirder than uh, I planned for. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He ends by saying it's cliche for you pastors and church leaders to hear, but you can't please everyone all the time. Take the path you deem best for your church and for the health of those who attend. Listen to the voices of wisdom and pray that God will honor your decision and protect everyone involved. And so that's Tom Rayner at Christian Post. Uh, you can read this on our Facebook page as well. Coming up next, uh, a lead singer of a Christian band uh, made a decision that is throwing some people. We are going to talk about that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today on this Wednesday afternoon. As always, find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. On Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, you can find us online at 1160hope.com and find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. If you're a podcast listener, uh, we'd love for you to just take a minute. It will take you no time just to subscribe, rate, and review. That does help us. So we are grateful for those of you who do that. I want to talk about uh, something that happened with the Christian band Hawk Nelson. But before we do that, uh, Ian is going to tell us yet again about Thrivent. I would love to. So I'm a Thrivent member. No surprise there. Maybe it is a surprise there. I don't know. It used to only really be for Lutherans. And then uh, about a decade ago or so, they dropped the Thrivent for Lutherans. So now we can all get in on the fun. A couple places to go. 
thriving.com to learn more. They're a Fortune 500 non-for-profit that's been around for more than 100 years, which that alone is legitimate. Plus, they're Christians. So when it comes to Christians and money, you know, we know that sometimes sometimes that can be a tricky conversation. I've been really grateful just for their guidance and their resources. Plus, if you're looking for a career change, which I know a lot of people are right now, you can go to thrivent.com slash careers. You can just dip a toe in the waters, no obligation, but just check it out, see if maybe it wouldn't be a really good fit for you. Plus, you can follow them on social, and they've been providing a whole bunch of really wonderful resources and webinars for how to navigate this really bizarre time that we're in. So cannot encourage you enough to head on over to thrivent.com or thrivent.com slash careers right now. So you said you've heard of this band, Hawk Nelson. Good. That's a band you enjoy, a Christian band uh, that you have listened to in the past? Uh, I can't say that I enjoy most Christian bands, Brian. Um, <laughs> Favorite Christian band, go. Oh, probably a band called Me Without You. Okay. Favorite Christian band that I've probably heard of, go. <laughs> you haven't heard of Hawk Nelson, and they're they're – Pretty massively popular in the uh, in the Christian music market. I was surprised that yeah. you had never heard of them. Literally, the first time I ever heard of them was this morning reading this article. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they were definitely. I mean, I have uh, some friends in another really, really wonderful Christian band called Citizen Way. Have you heard of them? I have heard of them. Yes. So those are those are some of my some of my good friends that uh, really? I have loved for a long time. Yeah, I think I think they're wonderful. So you have heard of Citizen Way. I have, yes. They'll, they'll be really happy to know that you've heard of Citizen Way, but not Hawk Nelson. I'm going to have to tell them. There that. you go. You should be like, my co-host knows nothing, and he's heard of you. <laughs> That's a good sign. Oh, anyway. Uh, well, why bring up Hawk Nelson? Where their uh, lead singer, John Steingard, uh, the lead singer of Hawk Nelson, came out yesterday saying, I no longer believe in God. So let me just read some of this article. This is from the Christian Post. Uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. it says John Steingard, the Canadian Christian rock band Hawk Nelson's lead vocalist has declared on social media. I no longer believe in God, explaining it didn't happen overnight. This is not a post I ever thought I would write, he said, but I feel like I really need to. I've agonized over whether to say this publicly and if so, how to do it. But I now feel that it's less important how I do it, more important that I do it. He said, after growing up in a Christian home, being a pastor's kid playing and singing in a Christian band and having the word Christian in front of the most of the things in my life, I am now finding that I no longer believe in God. I still find myself wanting to soften that statement by wording it differently or less specifically, but it wouldn't be as true. He explained that the process of getting to that sentence has been several years in the making. He said it didn't happen overnight or all of a sudden. It's been more like pulling on the thread of a sweater and one day discovering that there was no more sweater left. He said he had been terrified to be honest about this publicly for quite some time because of all that I thought I would lose. He added, he's still scared. He said, but I'm writing this uh, for a few reasons. I can no longer avoid it. Processing quietly felt right when I simply had doubts. Uh, and he noted that conversations with his friends who also grew up in the church, many have shared the same doubts. He said, I'm stunned by the number of people in visible positions within Christian circles that feel the same way I do. Like me, they fear losing everything if they're open about it. And he goes on to go through some of his doubts. Is God, you know, if God's all loving and all powerful, why is there evil? Why is there pain? And some other doubts. Uh, so when you hear this story, and um, I guess I would just start with this question. How does that make you feel? Are you sad or um, no, you know, we've seen some of these before. What was your first reaction reading the story? I think the parts that tend to be most sad for me are the consistent thread that I find 
especially when they're in the limelight, this narrative that they didn't feel safe to actually raise these questions or they didn't feel like they really could express these doubts because their livelihood is sort of inextricably tied to their Christianness, particularly mm-hmm. as it comes to their art. Um, so, you know, and I've talked about on the show before, I read an article years ago where they interviewed 10 different pastors from 10 different states and they were all anonymous for the purposes of this article. But in these private interviews, they shared that they all had become atheists at some point in their ministry, but didn't feel like they could actually share that with anybody because being a pastor was all they knew how to do. So they sort of just, you know, shoved those questions and that conclusion on down and continued to pastor, which is a whole other level of awful. Like that just seems to me dark in so many ways, but I don't know that it's as simple as saying like, well, we need to create more spaces for dialogue. I do tend to say things like that. And I think that's really, really important. But I think for someone like for someone like this guy, like some of the questions that he raises are really legitimate. And the church does need to do a better job at actually providing like thoughtful, intelligent uh, answers or at least responses. I don't know that there always are answers. That's an important distinction, I think. But to give space for you know, real honest dialogue and wrestling. The problem is you can give space all you want, but if someone like, like this guy or others like him, you know, aren't interested in stepping into that space or don't feel like they can be fully honest because of how much else is tied into that. But that's, that's a whole other discussion. And that's a really, that's a really hard one to untangle. Yeah, it really is. And uh, the other angle I wanted to take on this too, I think that's a great thing that you say about, you know, People need to realize doubt is very normal. Like, I would say if you've never had doubts in your faith, that would be more of a red flag than anything. Um, And having the the safety and the space to talk about those and kind of engage those in an honest way. Um, But with the time we have left, what does this say on the other end about Christian celebrity and kind of what we put on people who are like, you know, front people of a band or really popular pastor, singer, athlete who is, you know, who has put their faith in Christ. What is, uh, what does this teach us again about the danger of celebrity in the Christian world? I don't know that the celebrity itself is the danger. I think if you have a social media following of four people, but you're still a guarded person or one that doesn't feel Mm -hmm. safety to be yourself, you're going to have that whether you have four or 4 million. Like I think celebrity just sort of amplifies that which is already beneath the surface, right? Like I just heard someone yesterday saying, we're all like cups of coffee or we're all coffee mugs. And if you knock us, like whatever's actually inside is going to come spilling out. And it does make it tricky when there's a massive spotlight or you're, you're under a massive microscope, particularly in the Christian subculture. There are expectations. We've even felt this with this show where we didn't handle a topic the way that people thought we should, or we made one comment or there was wording in our post like we've certainly on a much much smaller scale we felt some of that pressure almost like well i don't want to say it this way but i actually really feel it this way but i want to represent you know the people in my life well and that can be tricky and i think the celebrity component just amplifies the pressure to like live up to what everyone else's expectations or pictures of you are yeah and that that can be really damning for sure yeah, I mean, I've never said anything on this show that I regretted at all. <laughs> that, well, that, you, that I believe, actually. That's- <laughs> uh, but I would say also the flip side of it's true that, you know, when you put people, lead singers of a band, athlete, pastor, even up on a pedestal, uh, that's dangerous for you. The one doing the the 
um, the elevating, not even just the person who's being elevated. That's dangerous for you. Then when they fall, you're going, what? You know, I, I put my hope in that person. Uh, and that is a really dangerous place to be as well. So uh, somewhat of an interesting story that brings up a lot of questions. And, I, you know, if you're out there and you have doubts and you have questions and you want someone to talk to, you're welcome to message us on our Facebook page, private Absolutely. message. We would be glad to have that conversation. Uh, I think we would both really welcome that. Well, coming up next, we're going back to the blog of a friend of the show, Scott Sauls. We're going to look at something he wrote on his blog. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Uh, with Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, thankful for you for joining us today uh, on this Wednesday afternoon. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all the articles that we talk about, even some things that we don't talk about. And uh, lots of lively debate there. Today, there was, in fact, lots of opinions being flown around about when should churches reopen and what's that? how do you process that whole debate uh, so if you'd be interested in that, go ahead and get on our Facebook page. Also, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. You can find us online at 1160hope.com and our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, before we discuss this next blog post from Scott Sauls, uh, let me remind you of something that we're excited that the station here is doing. Because during this coronavirus pandemic, we do know that so many businesses have had to close their doors or reduce their hours. We also know that there are still many businesses that are open and serving the public as best they can. So if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. All one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. Fill out the brief form and we're going to compile all of that information and share it with our listeners. It's totally free, no catch. So go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. Well, uh, as we like to say, friend of the show, Scott Saul, somebody who we have quoted so many times in the 16 months since this show started his blog, uh, his tweets. Uh, we, if Scott Sauls writes it, we tend to quote it. Uh, and he has a new book coming out next week that I'm very excited to get my hands on. Uh, but Scott Sauls at his blog, uh, blogged earlier this week, Christianity's Greatest Scandal, also its greatest validation. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what uh, Scott wrote here? Well, he's got the perfect cliffhanger, so let me just read a little bit, and then we'll uh, weave our thoughts okay. intertwined. So he says, having been a Christian for 34 years and a minister for 24, I've been told countless times by non-believing people that they would never consider becoming Christians because all of the Christians they know who are hypocrites. So many Christians, the argument goes, talk the talk but don't walk the walk. As Huffington Post contributor Francis Maxwell has said, ah, Christianity in America, or should I say the single greatest cause of atheism today, the type of people who acknowledge Jesus with their words and deny him through their lifestyle, which he's then, I think, quoting Brennan Manning there almost, right? That's, if I recall, I think so. Like the beginning of a DC Talk song where they were quoting. Anyway, he goes on to say the legitimacy of such concerns notwithstanding what Francis Maxwell and many of my friends don't realize and what I try to explain to them when given an opportunity, uh, is that this very fact that every single Christian is a hypocrite is the whole basis for our Christian faith. Mm. I know that you've read the whole thing, but what would you guess he's maybe leading into by what he said there? He's about to say, you think we're hypocrites. You don't know the level of our hypocrisy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that, that as sinful people, 
like that's kind of the point, his whole basis of our Christian faith that none of us are Christians because we're perfect. Uh, we are Christians because we are in desperate need of, of the, of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, it's the old, uh, Val Kilmer, right? In Tombstone at the end when he says, Oh, my, uh, my hypocrisy knows no bounds. <laughs> and right, so, right. <laughs> uh, I think uh, that's where Saul's is going with this. So, so what do you, I mean, do you agree with him? I'm assuming that you do. I do agree with him. At the same time, I also understand why people who are not believers um, would use this hypocrisy uh, as as a uh, reason for not believing. And especially, I think it's a specific type of hypocrisy. It's an uncaring hypocrisy. It's where I think they see uh, followers of Jesus Christ being hypocritical and kind of flaunting it, like not showing any remorse about it. Like, I think what Saul's is going to want us to see here is that like, yes, we're hypocrites, but there's remorse with that hypocrisy, right? Like, no, I'm not perfect. Um, but my lack of perfection bothers me as well. And I think that all too often there's followers of Christ out there who it seems like almost flauntly, yeah, I'm a hypocrite, but I don't feel badly about that. And so I think, right. Uh, I, I think there's a difference. I think there's there's almost a hmm, almost a level of hypocrisy that probably bothers people on different levels. Right. It's one thing if, if you were to come to me and be like, hey, listen, I'm still I'm a fallen human. I, I don't always live up to what I'm saying, but I, I try. But also, let me tell you about the grace of Jesus, as opposed to me looking at my Christian neighbor going like that guy's a jerk and like, I don't like him and he claims this, but he's worse than most of the people I know. Like that's a different level of hypocrisy that I could see why that would keep you away from the faith. So you tweaked it a little bit there at the end, but at first you were saying, yeah, the kind of hypocrisy that's uh, okay is as long as you're aware of it and feel bad about it. And I would say it, it probably needs to go further than that. You know, like mm-hmm. one of the definitions of abuse is apology without change. And a lot of people have been in relationships like that where, well, yeah, the person would consistently apologize and maybe even felt bad about it. That's the that's the weird middle ground space. But if they're not actually making any any active steps, this would be in, you know, Christian lingo sanctification. If they're just sort of saying like, hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm forgiven. Like, yeah, but you are allowing and perpetuating really toxic behavior. And I do see why sometimes an unbelieving world looks at that as a total cover up. Like, well, you're just using salvation as an excuse to do whatever you want. It's kind of in the same way that we, you know, have talked about Enneagram or Myers Briggs. Like, well, I can't help it. I'm just an eight. You're like, no, nah, you're just kind of being a jerk. Actually, you have, you still have some power over this eightness that you claim. And I think that's probably part of what people find so frustrating. It's not, it's not the disbelief that they feel bad is that they maybe don't see enough active steps towards weeding out that which is hypocritical. And that can be hard to do, you know, especially if you're not really aware of the harm that it's causing other people. Yeah, I totally agree with you. If I didn't give that off, it's um, I was trying to set up the two different types of people. One of us, we're all hypocrites at uh, as, you know, sinful people uh, as Christ followers. We're all going to be hypocritical at times. I think there's the person who says, uh, I'm going to repent of my hypocrisy. I'm going to confess it. I'm going to uh, learn from it and do my best to turn from it and and not live in that hypocrisy any longer, kind of owning my, my I'm not perfect versus the other one who's just kind of, you know, I claim the name of Jesus, but 
I'm going to I'm going to be toxic. I'm going to say what I want and not really show much remorse over it. I think those are two very different people. But I think Saul's point is that first one is the whole basis of the Christian faith that I need a savior, that I need forgiveness, that I need grace because I'm imperfect and because I'm a hypocrite. And because I can't live this out perfectly on my own, that's the whole point of the need that we have of Jesus in our lives. Yeah, and I, I think I, I probably would. I know this is blasphemous to say. I don't think I would necessarily agree with with Saul's entire premise because I don't. He talks about a couple of times that hypocrisy in no way negates Christianity, but establishes it. I don't know that Christianity is established on the principle of hypocrisy. It is certainly established on our own inability to save ourselves. But if you, you know, if you take even the apostle Paul, I will preach Christ and him crucified. Like there is a place that I believe we can get to this side of heaven where we are able to walk with humble authenticity that owns at the onset. Like I'm, I'm, I know that I'm going to make mistakes, but I'm not going to be hypocritical about it. doesn't mean you're not going to still be sinful, but I don't, I, I, I feel like there's more that we can do here as mm-hmm. Christ followers, and sometimes other Christians will tend to call us out for. Yeah. So let me read how Saul's closes this. We'll put this up on our Facebook page. He says, perhaps this is why the poor in spirit tax collectors and sinners, much more than the proud in spirit religious moralists, respond so swiftly and decisively when Jesus invites them to deny themselves, take up their crosses and follow him. For he and he alone has the words of life, John six sixty eight. He and he alone can give a good name to bad men and women and is therefore our ultimate source and power for the gentle answer. So, again, Scott Saul's well put. Uh, you can read that up at our Facebook page. Well, coming up, uh, we're going to start the next hour talking about quarantine bubbles uh, and what are those and are they legitimate right now? Are they things that we should be doing? We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk quarantine bubble, cancel culture, and the anniversary of a very famous sermon. That's all coming up next here on The Common Good. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Ian, I, I'm looking out my window right now, and my kids, it's like the essence of summer. It really makes me happy. Uh, they are on the trampoline with a sprinkler going right now. They like to call this water tramp, but doesn't that just sound like the essence of summer and the essence of being a kid? Like, I'm half expecting the ice cream truck to come by and it just be the perfect summer day right now. Wait, are you asking me if water tramp is the essence of summer? Is that- <laughs> Is that really the question you're going to ask me right now? The title might have some problems, but the activity is wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. I was really hoping you weren't going to give me a chance to talk because I am not responsible enough to be given this opportunity. No, that's I mean, we did the same thing. We bought a trampoline when I was a kid. My brother and I paid for half. My parents paid the other half. And we would regularly set sprinklers and stuff on it. It was like the highlight of the summer. It really is. They're just giggling like they haven't giggled in a while. Just the trampoline and a uh, uh, and a sprinkler. But tonight we're going to work on a new name for the activity. Apparently, <laughs> so no, please please keep it. I'll I'll see if the dot uh, com is available. <laughs> I'm sure you're not going to want to look that up. 
All right. There's a whole thing out there called the quarantine bubble. Before we get into the article, have you heard this phrase? Do you know what a quarantine bubble is? I Well, that's a two-part question, Brian. I Go have heard the phrase. Not confident I know what it is. Okay. What would you guess that a quarantine bubble is? Uh, I imagine it's like you fill a dish with water, soap, and the coronavirus, and you <laughs> I knew this was coming. blow bubbles across the land just to see what happens. Is that, am who I right? It, who it hits and you infect? That's a dark game. I was, I was trying to avoid those words exactly, Brian, but yeah. Was I close? So the, yes, you were right on. <laughs> Coming it. up next. I knew it. I knew it. Uh, so what the quarantine bubble is, is uh, it is. Uh, so right now we've all been quarantined or stay at home order with just our families. But the quarantine bubble is saying, you know what? There's a couple people in my in my life that I trust that they've been going about this the correct way. So it might be other family members. It might be other people on your street. It might be people in your church, whatever. A small number of people where you've kind of talked to them. They've talked to you. I trust that you've been doing what you're supposed to do. You haven't been reckless. And so we're going to expand our circle of people and now start hanging out with each other. Like you're going to kind of enter into our quarantine bubble. That was just me and my wife and my kids or whatever else. And that it's really a bigger deal for people without family, right? Like, so you're single, you've been going through this and you're like, all right, I need some interaction. And so it's kind of this loosening. And in fact, there's an article Uh, at Slate called I Have a Quarantine Bubble with People Outside My House, You Should Too. And then up at CNN uh, earlier uh, this month, Creating a Pandemic Social Bubble, a How-To Guide. Uh, So now that you know what a quarantine bubble is, uh, not only have you heard about that, but do you guys have some people? Are you still like locked down with just your family right now? Well, it was actually just our family up until this last weekend. We did a a social distanced barbecue thing at... Uh, my brother-in-law's house, which again, nice. is tough with little ones because, yeah. you know, they don't they don't really understand. So they want to run up and hug everybody. And it's a matter of I mean, my wife tends to be a lot more on the ball with some of that rule following type of stuff. So really, mm-hmm. a lot of it was like making sure that we were clear on, you know, what was permissible and what wasn't and how we were going to navigate the difficulties of being outdoors. And it's hot and there's little kids and not just our little kids. And then you have, you know. Other legitimate factors like, you know, their grandma. I mean, both grandmas haven't seen them in a long time. I, my parents live in Detroit, but uh, Katie's mom who lives here has it's been hard to, you know, like, I just want to hold them. I just want to like, they, you know, she was coming over once a week for a while there. So wanting to really navigate and be sensitive to all of that. So, yeah, we're we're slowly beginning to have some of those conversations. Are you guys somewhere in that mix? We I would say we are. Um the most glaring spot that we are is with um, uh, some of our family. We just kind of said, Hey, we trust you. You trust us. We're in a good spot. Uh, And so we've kind of been getting together. Like they're our outlet for our kids and and vice versa. Um, But yeah, it's weird because I would say we're following the rules a lot more than most people, but there are these outlets. We just kind of made the decision you know what? We need a couple a couple small outlets for our kids, for us, for everybody's sanity, and we're going to go about it. Because it even says in this article, this Slate article, keep it exclusive, keep it small. It says, in my pod, we all did a lot of talking, thinking, and reading before joining up. We shared articles. We looked at graphs that charted the probability of a gathering of a given size, including a, 
of that size, including a person with COVID-19 based on viral spread. It said gatherings of fewer than 10 people vanishing. They're vanishingly low. Uh, and so basically trusting one another um, kind of for your own sanity. Let me ask you this. We're about to go to phase three. Is it on Friday? Mm-hmm where you can be in groups of 10 or less. Do you have you and your wife talked about whether that will change how you do things or is it still kind of, you know what, let's just keep going how we're going. I mean, we've, yeah, we're obviously talking about it every, every evening. Cause there seems like there's new news all the time and we're doing this show. So you and I are, you know, reading stuff all day long. And so I feel like there's a lot of like, Hey, what, what did you read today? What did you find? And I'm always like, well, the conclusive evidence I found is that everyone disagrees. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> I don't feel like I have any more clarity than I did before. But I think we are, especially with the improvement in the weather, we're both sort of feeling, I don't know that anxious is the right word, but like ready to do some yeah. of these. And both these articles are written from a slightly different perspective, but certainly provide some good groundwork for the for anyone listening is like, no, no way. I'm never doing a bubble. I'm not coming out until 2022. Like there might be, some things in these two articles worth considering just because I think it it um, it provides a good counterbalance to some of what maybe we've been hearing elsewhere. So uh, does that answer your question? We're, we're like mindful of it. We're considering it cautiously. I think that's great. And I've tried to put my I actually socially distanced met. Uh, I had a social distance meeting with somebody yesterday in a parking lot. We both grabbed chairs, sat like eight feet apart or so. Just because just to talk and it was it's a single guy and he's just like, listen, I'm just really lonely. Like, I'm just this is really hard. And I knew that. But to hear somebody say it, I was like, yeah, that this has to be really hard. Um, It's hard for all of us. But if you were single and you were trying to follow the rules and, uh, you know, you wanted to stay healthy, this would be really hard. And I think that's what this article is trying to get at. It's trying to say, listen. Uh, there's ways that you could go about this smartly, whether it doesn't necessarily have to be either zero human interaction or get rid of all um, uh, all order and all rule following. Like there's a middle ground here uh, for you to think about and think it through. Right. Uh, and I think there's something to that. I think that, you know, we, we've said it a lot. We've been made for uh, for interaction and for community. And I think we're getting to the point after 10, 11 weeks that. You know, I think if you if you if you feel yourself just like really just starved right now, I think there's a way to go about this. And I think these articles that we'll put up at our Facebook page uh, are helpful without flaunting the rules. I think that that that's right now. I feel like people are either like locked down or like, hey, life is normal, complete. And this really, I think, strikes a pretty good middle ground, I think. Well, and we saw some photos yesterday or maybe it was this morning of some of the beaches that have opened and then just yeah. mountains of trash afterward, you know, like that kind of stuff to me, I still don't feel good about. And it's no. that, can, that leads me down a whole other rabbit trail of emotions. But I think articles like these are helpful, too, because it sort of equalizes some of the conversation where, you know, it, agree. you tend to kind of ping pong between conspiracies or you know, this this governmental official is saying this, but this religious leader over here is saying this. And I think those things are all really important to weigh and consider. It it has been discouraging a little bit to see how, even in interpersonal dialogue, how quickly everything becomes very polarized. Like, it's hard to have an objective right. conversation about what really is right. a decent course of action for us right here, right now, without it becoming like, well, you know those Democrats, or you know those Republicans. are like, sure, <laughs> whatever. But can we, yeah. can we, let's just focus on ours right now what do we what do we think is the right course of action based on all the information that we have and that you know i think is always needed and always important but probably now more than ever 
I read somewhere today. We'll wrap it up here. Uh, I read somewhere today that uh, I read somewhere I was reading today that over the weekend, the Indiana Dunes, that there was a line at one point of three hours long to get to the dunes. And they said it was almost exclusively cars with Illinois license plates. No kidding. (laughs) Wow. It's it speaks to how different people are, t- are handling this differently. So yeah. uh, we're going to put both articles, the one from Slate and the one from CNN. You can find them on our Facebook page already there uh, at the Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we haven't talked cancel culture in a while, but there's a one particular well-known celebrity uh, who's finding himself in the crosshairs. We're going to talk about that next here in the Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Find us online, 1160hope.com. Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, Grateful for those of you uh, who do that. Uh, Ian, I want to hear about Thrivent. I don't know where to go for that. I think you know. In fact, I think you could tell me about Thrivent. Ryan, there's no need to lie to the people in order to tee up. <laughs> I know you know where to go. That is, people see right through that. They won't stand for it, nor should they. Uh, you can go to Thrivent.com to learn more if you want. So I'm a Thrivent member, have been for seven or eight years. They're a Fortune 500 non for profit, but they're also just a wonderful Christian organization, which I don't often say is necessary. I don't like call a Christian plumber or a Christian electrician, you know, like maybe some of you do. I don't necessarily do that. But I know that when it comes to finances in particular, like the philosophy of Christianity and the philosophy of the world tend to be very, very different. So it's been awesome to have a resource like them. Also, if you're looking for a career change, thrivent.com slash careers is a wonderful place to go. I know a lot of people, especially right now in the season are looking to maybe consider a different path. And you don't even need to have a background in finance. If you just like helping people, coming alongside people, Thrivent is a wonderful organization. So you can learn more at thrivent.com slash careers. I just have to tell you, you did a great job on that. You did a great job on that. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Late night hosts. Do you have a favorite late night host? We're going to talk about one of them here in a second. Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel. uh, Who's who? uh, Who's at CBS? Why am I drawing a blank? I said, you you mm. started this list, and I was like, oh, he's going for it. No, what what else can you remember? I want to know. Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, the guy in CBS. He used to be on the Jon Stewart show, and I'm okay. drawing a blank. Yeah, I'm 43. It's hit me today. I think it just finally hit. Well, there's no such thing as the Jon Stewart show either. It used to be, right? No. So say it again. <laughs> the Jon Stewart show? Is that not a thing? No, <laughs> Late sir, night, which- it's not. Uh, he, was the host, he was the host of that show. What was it called? You want to? You want to guess? <laughs> no, no. I'm clearly, I'm clearly forgetting now. I want to know just do this for the rest of the segment. It was called the oh. Daily Show. The Daily Show oh. with John Stewart. And why can't I remember? I could picture the guy on CBS. <laughs> do you want? Do you want to take a oh. swing? Just take a guess. I think. I think I'm really having issues today. Oh boy, that's uh, concerning. It, it is kind of concerning. I don't know what my deal is. People, you should stay by your radios today uh, just to see where this goes. So <laughs> gives me. Oh, I got it. Stephen Colbert. There Thank you. you go. See, I knew Thank you could do you. it, Brian. I believe that, that, was, that was beyond embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> Fallon, Kimmel or Colbert. Do you have a favorite? Oh, those are the only ones I have to choose from. Oh, who else would you add? Conan O'Brien, maybe? Yeah, Conan, Craig. 
Um, yeah. Who else is out there? You have uh, Corden. That's yeah. true. I'm going to let you choose any of them. Who's your favorite? I've been a big fan of Conan for a while. Okay. Okay. I think I'd go Kimmel on this one. I think. Really? Although, really? again, with my age, I don't stay up for a lot of them very often. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't. I mean, I don't watch any of that live anyway, but. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. Conan O'Brien was just, he is just different than the rest of them. He the, really, really way. is. You're not wrong. In a good way. So you might be wondering why I'm asking and why I just tortured you with my inability to remember any of these people's names. <laughs> that's because I'm actually questioning the same thing for myself. But that's mm-hmm. because Jimmy Fallon, who ironically is kind of known as the safest of all of them. Like that's yeah. kind of Fallon's thing. Uh, Jimmy Fallon has found himself in the crosshairs of cancel culture. So if you remember, we've had I feel like we were having a weekly conversation about cancel culture a few months back where. Uh, somebody says something or something comes up that they said something or did something. Uh, and Twitter's kind of like, we're done, like you're done. And people have lost their jobs, uh, lost their careers over this. And so, uh, Jimmy Fallon, uh, a lot of people kind of went crazy over Twitter because a sketch from Saturday Night Live from the year 2000 came up in which, uh, Jimmy Fallon was impersonating Chris Rock. And in this comedy sketch, Jimmy Fallon is decked out in full, complete blackface, as it's called, just impersonating Chris Rock. And so let me read some of the article. It says, uh, talk shows Jimmy Fallon has apolog- apologized for his, quote, unquestionably offensive, offensive decision uh, to do blackface in a comedy sketch in 2000. The clip is from Saturday Night Live, shows the Tonight Show host impersonating comedian Rick uh, Chris Rock. Uh, it resurfaced on Twitter on Tuesday with the hashtag, hashtag Jimmy Fallon is over party, quickly gaining traction. Fallon released a statement on Twitter. He said in 2000, while on SNL, I made a terrible decision to do an impersonation of Chris Rock while in blackface. There's no excuse for this. I'm very sorry for making this unquestionably offensive decision and thank all of you for holding me accountable. So a lot of people, it says here, jumped on the hashtag to express disappointment over the racist move. Others were dismayed by the Internet's unhealthy obsession with canceling celebrities in isolation. And so I did feel like you and I had a lot of conversations about these, but now it has come back up. Fallon on Saturday Night Live, so not kind of on his own, but on Saturday Night Live in the year 2000, uh, wearing blackface, pretending to be Chris Rock. And now it's come back up. And there are some people being like, he should lose his career. He should lose his job over this. As you read this story, digested it a little bit. Uh, what are your thoughts about it? I mean, first and foremost, blackface is inexcusable. It's awful. Mm-hmm. It's insanely insulting and degrading, obviously. You did kind of mention, I'd be curious to know why you did the fact that it was on SNL and not Jimmy Fallon by himself. I don't know if that, in your mind, uh, lessens the blow, if that absolves him a little bit. Like, well, a bunch of people signed off on it, so it can't just be Jimmy Fallon. I do, and we've gone here probably a number of times in the last year and a half that we've had the show. There is something odd to me. And again, I, I don't know Jimmy at all, and I know that he's he's actually showed up in the headlines a couple of times with some uh, alleged drinking stuff, right. injury with his ring, and some other stuff like that. But is there what was the comment? I wish I wish I could have bookmarked this because one of the last segments we did on cancel culture, they uh, I think it was 
Kimmel, who had a guest on his show, and she was saying, cancel culture is so anti-progress. I think it does more harm than it realizes because if people aren't allowed the opportunity to have made mistakes and then repent for them or apologize or make different choices, that's part of, that's part of what it means to grow as an artist, to grow as a performer, to grow as a communicator. Um, now, that's not to say like, well, man, I used to, you know, drop F-bombs in a sermon and now I don't right. anymore. You're like, well, you'd right. never get hired again. Like, that would be the end for you. Like, that's just not, you know what I mean? Or the end for a while, at the very least. There are certain things that I think should disqualify people permanently from those roles. We've talked a lot in church ministry in particular how, yeah, there are plenty of people that can be restored back to the body, sure. but they've disqualified themselves from leadership. I think that's still a thing. Um mm-hmm. But in this case, I don't know. It it's it seems very strange to me that that it's all happening right now, and that's that's yeah. hard. That's hard for me to really navigate because I don't really understand. I don't I don't understand why necessarily, and I think that he feels as appalled by it as everyone else does. If I'm reading him correctly, but I don't know. I don't. Maybe you disagree. Maybe you think being appalled and apologizing isn't enough. No, I think it is in this sense that. And the reason I mentioned it's Saturday Night Live and not something else is uh, that speaks a little bit more to, and I think you and I are both in complete agreement that this, uh, our culture has moved to the point, thankfully, where blackface is not an acceptable thing. But the fact that it was on Saturday Night Live, which tries to be edgy, does speak to a little bit of, it was in some ways more acceptable there to be poking, they were poking fun at Chris Rock, who is also a Saturday Night Live uh, person. And again, it doesn't make it right, especially in our context, but back then it speaks a little bit to, there seemed to be some more acceptableness to it, um, that he wasn't kicked off the show for that at that point. Um, I think that I I used to say this when you and I would talk about cancel culture all the time. Like I want to give people the opportunity to be contrite and go, I've learned, I wouldn't do this now. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry, uh, but things like cancel culture paint people into a corner, right? NBC in this article, we're reminded they fired Megyn Kelly, uh, not for even doing blackface, but for saying she thought it was okay to do it at Halloween and they fired her the next day. Yeah. Uh, and so what do you do with that? That's what makes cancel culture a little, mm, uh, it starts to get a little bit dicey. And so, uh, no, I don't think he should lose his job over that. And I hope that he genuinely is remorseful and says, you know, I've learned from this and, uh, maybe he needs to take it a on. step further, too. Maybe it needs to be more than just an apology and remorse, yeah. but actually using his platform to help dismantle behaviors like this that he now sees in 20 years later, wisdom, hindsight, that like, oh, yeah, this is really, really destructive. Maybe maybe it's being more proactive than simply saying, yeah. really sorry, everybody. Yeah, maybe he has people on his show who can help explain why this is such a bad deal or why this is hurtful. I think it would be a much better than going, ah, he should lose his job, so... Uh, would love to know your opinion, Jimmy Fallon and cancel culture. You could do so at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, uh, we recently passed an anniversary to one of the more well-known sermons of recent years. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're really grateful for you joining us today. We know there's lots of things you could be doing on this Wednesday afternoon, or maybe you're listening on the podcast sometime in the future. And uh, that sounds really ominous. Oh, maybe you're listening in the future. <laughs> 
but we're glad that you are joining us and taking the time to do so. Uh, would you go ahead and go to our Facebook page and help us continue the conversation? You can do that at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And also, if you are a podcaster, uh, if you take the time to subscribe, rate, and review, that really does help us. We are thankful for those of you doing. Maybe tell somebody else about The Common Good on the podcast. You can go ahead and do that. And uh, we are grateful for those of you who are podcast listeners. So, uh, have you ever been to the Passion Conference, Ian? Ever at any point, college, just out of college, ever go to the Passion Conference? No, sir. Me either. But it's uh, many Look at people how cool have. We are. I so, know. <laughs> so cool. Let's do the other things we haven't done. <laughs> I uh, I have never listened to a Hawk Nelson. Was that the name, Hawk Nelson? You know, yes. I, <laughs> I got it right. I've never listened to a Hawk Nelson song. You're way <laughs> over enunciating it, Brian. It's making it so much more awkward. Have you guys oh, ever Hawk listened Nelson. to rock and roll? You, <laughs> what is up with I've, this rock and roll music? I've turned into that guy. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's good. I think that Not happened a turn. while ago. <laughs> good point. Good point. Uh, so, uh, at the uh, Gospel Coalition, it said morning of May 20th, 2000. So we just passed the 20 year anniversary. And I was I got reading about this the other day and I was very interested. John Piper uh, spoke at the fourth Passion Conference. It was the first outdoor conference of the Passion Conference. Uh, 40,000 college students were there. Uh, and it says it was a day that many wouldn't forget. One they described with words like special and holy uh, and weight of glory. Uh, so a lot of people in college, kind of transformational time, looking back on this message that John Piper gives, uh, and it turned into a book of his, uh, and it turned into a lot of different things. It's famously known as his uh, seashell message. So he says it was the biggest group I'd ever spoken to in my life, and it actually made him anxious. Uh, when I was in high school, he says, I couldn't speak in front of groups. I was paralyzed with fear. Uh, and so uh, with no bathroom or food break scheduled, funneling 40,000 people through porta potties and food tents, it was a logistical nightmare, but they were all there. Uh, and he's getting up to speak. Let me just pause. Could you ever imagine speaking to 40,000, 50,000, 100,000 people? No. Uh, what kind of feelings do you think you would have if you had that opportunity? I don't even want to go there. That just sounds t legitimately terrifying. <laughs> yeah. What's the largest number of people you've ever spoken to? Oh, let's not play this game. No, no. I'm really curious. I'm not trying to puff you up. I'm not trying to do anything. I'm just I'm legitimately curious. Um. Gosh, I don't, I don't know that I remember. Okay, let me let me think during the course of this segment, and I'll I'll get back to you. All right. So Piper, uh, he he speaks on. Uh, he says he began this way. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. He says you just have to know a few basic, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things, and be gripped by them, and be willing to lay down your life for them five minutes in he laid out a comparison nobody there would forget and he says uh he talks about somebody in his church uh, ruby eliasson and laura edwards who were killed in cameroon uh and he asked this question they were killed they were missionaries over the age of 80 in cameroon and he asked this question is this a tragedy uh and so he goes on to talk about 
two women in their 80s, whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick. Uh, and then he says, <clears throat> and 20 years after most of their American counterparts have begun to throw their lives into trivialities in Florida or New Mexico, they fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy? The crowd calls out no. And he then pulls out a page from Reader's Digest. And he said, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Uh, they set crews on a 30-foot trawler, play softball, and could collect shells. He says, that's the tragedy. And if you, you've probably heard Piper say this or his book, he says, the real tragedy is that they spent the rest of their life just collecting shells. And he says, they're going to stand before the Lord one day and say, look, God, here's my shell collection. And then he goes on to talk about don't waste your life. Uh, let me ask this question, because this you, you do read about people who were there talk about this being just such a life changing sermon. What do you think it was for college kids to hear this message about not wasting your life uh, that resonated so much then and, and still resonates now through Piper's book and through uh, through other ones of the sermons? Why this message of don't waste your life, do you think? I mean, I think the age group that he was speaking to had a yeah. big a big part in that. You know, you're looking at like. In a lot of ways, by a lot of Western perspectives, at the very least, this is the rest of your this is the beginning of your life. Really, I, you know, I'm about to graduate or I'm pursuing my field of interest and I'm thinking about a career and family and all this stuff. I think if in some ways can feel like almost a it's like a commencement speech on steroids, really. Like, that's don't, right. Don't waste this one beautiful, amazing, precious thing you've been giving. I will. I will say this, though, and you're probably going to get mad at me for doing this. Um <laughs> Please because do. You chose this article, and I know that you love this sermon, and you love the Gospel Coalition, I, and all that. Um, I say do, that in a specific way, <laughs> <laughs> right? I do think, in some regards, some of this type of preaching has also led to like chronic workaholism, because I get what he's saying about the seashells, but I also think sometimes the holiest thing you can do is collect seashells with your spouse to mm -hmm. simply rest and breathe in the goodness of God around you to recognize. His presence and beauty in the small thing, it doesn't always have to be about we're going to take the world by storm. And I'm going to, you know, I used to say all the time, I want to die with my boots on. I don't think yeah. I say that anymore because on one hand, I, I totally understand the sentiment. I don't want to just coast the last 40 years of my life. On the other hand, I know that I also personally have this like innate insatiable workaholism that I've had to spend a lot of my adult life trying to untangle and and unwork in my life and sometimes that is it does look like what may some might deem as wasting time i think that's just as sacred as going on mission trips and leading a worship band and preaching a sermon and so I, yeah sometimes sometimes for me i wonder if sermons like this haven't had some effect on the uh the workaholism that we see you know in our age group i think predominantly yeah i think that is completely fair i think uh, the most power for me in this message, and I love his book, uh, Don't Waste Your Life as well, which is based on this sermon. Um, I think the power in it is not so much uh, for me in Don't Waste Your Life by collecting seashells or whatever, but it is the asking yourself the question, what's the purpose that I'm living for? What's this yeah, life all about? That's a good question. Purpose questions um, are good. I affirm that for sure. But I also completely see what you're talking about. Also, it could lead towards people feeling guilty about having a job in the business world when sure. really what you want them asking is how do I not waste my time in the business world or right. whatever else it might be. The irony is that you said that uh, 
I'm the one of the two of us that is most likely to end up on a beach just collecting seashells. So (laughs) as long as you found a bag of money somewhere (laughs) with the minute we have left, here's my question, college, high school, whatever. uh, Do you remember a sermon that, that, that shaped much of your perspective and almost changed the trajectory of your life? When I ask that question, is there any one sermon that comes to mind for you? Oh man. That's a really tough question. I, I think I've mentioned before the the preaching seminar I went to that was a day-long thing of like world-renowned communicators that ended with Charles Stanley, and he mm. like supposedly lost his place in the notes or something. He like got real frazzled, and then he like looked up at the camera, and I swear to you he was like about to cry. He said, a person preaches as well as they pray, and then he like walked off camera, mm. and I – Remember sitting wow. stunned, like my I just listened to a whole day of like really good teaching on how to preach well, and this this man, you know, in sort of like his is probably his final stage, sort of saying, "Man, if you're not if you're not praying, you have no business preaching." That will always stick with me. I don't do. Do you have one that stands out? So when I was in high school, you were a good CMA kid. So do you remember high school youth group, the, the life conferences? Do you remember those at oh, all? Yeah, for, for sure. It was like sure. the national CMA conference. And I don't remember who the speaker was, but I was the summer before I went to Wheaton. So I was about to go off on my own. I was the good youth group kid, never missed youth group, never missed church. And a guy spoke about uh, the difference. He basically said, you can know a lot about God. That doesn't mean you know God. And I remember, I don't remember who the guy was. I don't, I couldn't picture where I was. I do remember walking to the back and weeping, thinking he's describing me. Wow. (laughs) And I'm not a crier. And I just wept. And I felt like it was just God's grace going, you're about to leave home. Like you're about to go off on your own. Like you need to hear this. Hmm. Uh, So again, and that was a great reminder for me because I don't remember who the guy was. Like there could be things you and I have said to people and they're like, yeah, some guy said along the way. (laughs) that is a that God uses powerfully in someone's life. So, um, yeah, we would love to hear those stories from you. You can also read more about uh, the Piper's article uh, here on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we are going to end the show the way we always end our shows. Some interweb insanity coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. And that music can only mean one thing. It means it is time to dock the boat, land the plane, park the bike, whatever other analogy you want to use. But it's time to end the show with some interweb insanity. Uh, These are stories from the internet that our executive producer, producer, Keith Conrad, has found. Uh, Ian, I'm a little worried about these because Keith, nobody likes, nobody loves a good uh, NASA space shuttle takeoff more than Keith. And he was, I think, super excited today and it got scrubbed. And I think he's going to take out his frustrations on interweb insanity with us. Well, you know who might like them more than Keith Conrad is NASA. I feel like they, (laughs) you say no one, I say nay, sir. (laughs) Valid point. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Nobody that I know is more excited about them than Keith Conrad. So uh, so anyway, you're going to go first with this one out of Pennsylvania. Yeah, if you'll remind me, I have a story about this one uh, before we move on to the second one, if that's okay. All right, so this is okay. out of Pennsylvania. Yes. You can now enjoy a hot dog flavored beer. I would mm. add gross. A hot dog flavored <laughs> beer now exists. It's called the Hop Dog. I mean, that's 
That joke pretty much writes itself, right? That's, it does. The beer was created in partnership between the devil. I'm just kidding. The company <laughs> Nesha Miney Creek Brewing and the convenience store chain Sheets with a Z. Oh, boy. It's an Indian pale ale IPA that is actually brewed with hot dogs. The same convenience store has also come up with beer that tastes like coffee and other that tastes like blueberry muffins. Mmm, beer. That does sound gross. And what is your story that you uh, you wanted to make sure to tell us? So one year we were at Cornerstone Festival. I don't know if you're familiar with Cornerstone Festival, Brian Fromm. I am. I've never been to it. I used to go to Creation Festival in Pennsylvania, but never Cornerstone. But I am aware. Yeah, that explains a lot. So Corner, I was uh, <laughs> it was in high school, and it was like like 117 degrees or something. It was just mm-hmm. brutal, and we were trying. We were like run out of water or something, but our cooler. Uh, all the ice had melted. We're like, oh, we can use this to make drinking water. But it had a bunch of like hot dogs in it for like a number of days. So the water was like hot dog water. And I was like, here, what if I scoop in some country time lemonade to kind of mask the hot dog flavor? And it just somehow like accentuated it. So it was like a big cooler <laughs> full of hot dog flavored lemonade. And it was, and, but we were so desperate that we drank it anyway. But it was just the worst. It was the worst. Oh, that's gross. That's gross. The next one out of Canada, go-kart operator charged with having over three times the legal limit. A 21-year-old man is facing impaired driving charges for allegedly operating a go-kart while under the influence. Uh, Witnesses say the driver was speeding with no lights on and not wearing a helmet, just a cowboy hat. Police say tests showed the driver had more than three times the legal limit of alcohol in his system. He was released with a future court date. Have you been drinking? I'm not drunk. Okay, you want to go to Wisconsin? I do. Uh, upset bicyclist refused to leave Dairy Queen drive through <laughs> <laughs> Some hard-hitting news. Police were called to a Waukesha Dairy Queen this week over a man who refused to leave the restaurant's drive through while he was on his bicycle. According to Waukesha Police Call Logs, an officer was sent to Dairy Queen just before 8 p.m. Wednesday for the report of a man who was refusing to get out of the drive through Police said the man wanted to go through the drive through on his bicycle when a restaurant employee told him they only served people in motor vehicles from the drive through He became upset with the staff and refused to leave, according to the police. Must be inordinately taxing to be such a boob. That's a little bit of a weird rule, though, right? Can we all agree it to is. that? It is, and that's a very Wisconsin story as well right there. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Just get the man some ice cream. <laughs> Next one's out of Connecticut. Alleged shoplifter hunkers down in Woodhaven Home Depot lawn chair and fears being banned. A woman was detained for allegedly shoplifting in a home improvement store as she refused to leave until she could speak with the manager, saying she didn't want to be banned from the store. Store personnel called police for assistance with an unwanted person who was sitting in a lawn chair in the shopping area open to the public. According to a police report, she would not leave and refused to give her identification. The woman, who was not restrained, demanded to see a manager. Upon their arrival, officers were told a woman concealed several items under bags of mulch and only paid for what was visible. The woman said she forgot to pay for the items, which included paintbrushes and painter's tape. She said she didn't want to leave before speaking with the manager so that she would not be banned. And this last one makes me laugh already. Out of Italy, it says airline flies to Italy, forgets to see if airport was open. (laughs) (laughs) A plane carried passengers from Germany to Italy before turning around midair because its intended airport is closed until next month. How do you how do you not check this? 
How is this even a thing, right? You can picture the co-pilot just shaking his head at the the (laughs) pilot, staring at him. Uh, A spokesperson for German airline Eurowings confirmed that Saturday mix-up was played out over four hours per CNN. Uh, Flight EW9844 set off from Dusseldorf. I don't know why I said it like the Swedish chef. uh, (laughs) Intended to make the 730-mile trip to Sardinia's Olbia Airport. It wasn't until the plane began its approach that air traffic control informed pilots that the airport was closed to commercial traffic per AFP. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. That's a tough one to turn to your co-pilot and just say, whoops, sorry. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) That's crazy. So we're glad that you joined us today. Another good day in the books. Join us tomorrow on Thursday from 4 until 6 p.m. again. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.